Welcome to the last month at the Federal Circuit, a look at recent Federal Circuit decisions impacting the intellectual property community. Finnegan partner Mike Jakes joins us now to offer insight into recently decided cases and their potential implications. Now, Mike, there were some interesting developments in the Federal Circuit last month dealing with the court's review of the Patent Office. What were those cases? First, we have the St. Regis Mohawk Tribe versus Mylan. This case is about an Indian tribe's claim of sovereign immunity from patent challenges in the patent office. There's also the NantQuest case, where the patent office claimed that patent applicants challenging the patent office in district court had to pay the patent office's attorney's fees, whether they won or lost. Let's start with the tribal sovereign immunity case. Can you tell us first how the case came to be, and in particular, how did an Indian tribe get involved in a patent case? The story here starts with Allergan, which owned several patents covering Restasis, a treatment for chronic dry eye. Restasis is one of Allergan's best-selling drugs, generating annual revenue around $1.5 billion. Allergan sued three generic drug competitors in the district court, accusing them of infringing the patents. The generics petitioned for inter-party review, and the Patent Trial and Appeal Board agreed to review the Allergan patents. The board has issued decisions finding that state sovereign immunity under the 11th Amendment is available as a defense in IPR proceedings. In one case, for example, involving a patent owned by the University of Florida, the patent was challenged in inter-party review, and the board found that the university was protected by state sovereign immunity. Apparently relying on this line of cases, Allergan paid the St. Regis Mohawk tribe $13.75 million to take ownership of the Restasis patents, along with a promise of ongoing royalties. The tribe licensed the patents back to Allergan for FDA-approved uses, including Restasis. So why did Allergan do this? In general, Indian tribes are considered domestic-dependent nations, having inherent sovereign immunity. As a result of that, suits against the tribes in federal court are barred, absent a clear waiver of immunity. And so arguing that tribal immunity insulated the Restasis patents from inter-party review, the St. Regis Mohawk tribe, as the new patent owner, tried to terminate the IPR proceeding. What happened at the Patent Trial and Appeal Board? The board rejected the tribe's bid to terminate the IPRs and found that the tribe could not assert its tribal immunity in inter-party review proceedings. The Indian tribe and Allergan filed an immediate appeal under the Collateral Order Doctrine, The appeal was then expedited and reached the Federal Circuit for oral argument in less than four months. And how did the Federal Circuit see the issue of tribal sovereign immunity? In general, sovereign immunity doesn't apply in federal agencies, but it's not a blanket rule. Some agency proceedings more closely resemble civil litigation between two private parties. And in agency proceedings, sovereign immunity doesn't apply, but it may apply if it's more like civil litigation. The leading case on this point involved the Federal Maritime Commission, and in that case, the Supreme Court held that state sovereign immunity precluded a private party from making a claim against a state-run port because of the close similarities to civil litigation. During the oral argument, Judge Moore described IPRs as a hybrid type of procedure that in some ways resembles civil litigation but in other ways is more like a specialized agency proceeding. The question then was on which side of the line IPRs fall. And here's what Judge Moore had to say. What we're trying to do is to decide 
whether tribal immunity applies in this hybrid type of proceeding. This proceeding has many of the trappings of civil litigation, as you've eloquently articulated in your briefs, but at heart, it is reconsideration of the PTO's own prior grant. So is it enforcement action when it's really just a reconsideration, as Oil State says, of the PTO grant, or is it more like civil litigation between two parties where both parties have something at stake? Right. And, and, and both parties don't have something at stake in this case. Only the patentee has something at stake in the IPR context. And it's the reconsideration of the prior grant. So I, I understand all the reasons you've articulated for why this is like a civil litigation. And Justice Gorsuch certainly helped you a lot by three separate places analogizing it to civil <laughs> litigation. But then the majority in oil states didn't help you, and he's in the dissent. By the way, those two cases really come to loggerheads here in this exact instance for us, I think, because it's a hybrid proceeding. So which side of the line does it fall on and why? And what did the federal circuit decide? So the court held that tribal sovereign immunity doesn't apply to IPRs. Interestingly, the court didn't even mention any of the political or policy concerns but it focused strictly on whether IPRs are more like a civil lawsuit or a traditional agency action. Judge Moore, who was the author of the opinion, said IPRs are more like an agency enforcement action than a civil suit by a private party. For example, the director of the patent office has broad discretion in deciding whether to institute review. In that way, an IPR is more like the situation where an agency decides to initiate a proceeding based on information supplied by a private party. Also, in an IPR, once the review is instituted, the board can choose to continue, even if the petitioner drops out. And finally, the differences between IPR proceedings and civil proceedings are substantial. An IPR hearing is really nothing like a district court patent trial. Mike, will the Federal Circuit's decision in St. Regis have any impact on other patent owners? Unless and until the Supreme Court decides to review the case, which is definitely possible, other patent owners probably won't follow Allergan's lead and assign their patents to Indian tribes. But more significantly is the decision's effect on patents owned by state universities. State universities often license their patents for commercial use but retain ownership. The board has on several occasions found that state sovereign immunity does apply to IPR proceedings. Now, going back to the Supreme Court's Federal Maritime Commission case, which the Federal Circuit relied on, that case concerns state sovereign immunity, not tribal immunity. And on that point, the court's opinion said, although the precise contours of tribal sovereign immunity differ from those of state sovereign immunity, the FMC analysis is instructive. That's referring to the Federal Maritime Commission case. So the logic behind the Federal Circuit's St. Regis decision would seem to apply to claims of state sovereign immunity before the Patent Trial and Appeal Board. But the court then went out of its way to say that it wasn't deciding the state sovereign immunity issue. It said, while we recognize there are many parallels, we leave for another day the question of whether there is any reason to treat state sovereign immunity differently. That day is coming. There are several consolidated appeals from IPRs pending where the University of Minnesota owns the patents. In the lead case against Erickson, an expanded panel of the board decided that state sovereign immunity would apply, 
but the University of Minnesota waived its immunity by filing suit on the patents in the district court. Erickson and others who are challenging the university's patents have argued that the Federal Circuit has already effectively decided the state immunity issue in the St. Regis case. The U.S. Department of Justice has filed an amicus brief there it argued, contrary to what the Patent Trial and Appeal Board said, state sovereign immunity doesn't apply to IPRs at all. Several states and state universities have also filed amicus briefs on the opposite side, supporting immunity and arguing against waiver, saying the University of Minnesota did not consent to appear before the Patent Trial and Appeal Board. Briefing is not yet complete in that case, but it should be soon and the argument scheduled at the Federal Circuit sometime this year or early 2019. Let's turn now to another appeal from the Patent Office, the NatQuest case. Only this wasn't a direct appeal. It involved a Section 145 action filed in the district court. By way of background, can you explain what a Section 145 action is? The patent statute gives patent applicants two options if they lose before the board. The applicant can appeal directly to the Federal Circuit. That's the most common. An applicant can also file a civil action in the Eastern District of Virginia under Section 145. This second option is only available for original patent applications. It's not available for reviews of issued patents, such as reexaminations or inter-party review. There are significant differences between direct appeals from the board and Section 145 actions. Direct appeal review is confined to the record in the patent office. And the scope of review is also limited. The PTO's factual findings are reviewed for substantial evidence. In other words, the findings can be reversed or set aside only if they are unsupported by substantial evidence. But a Section 145 action is more expansive and more costly. Most significantly, patent applicants can conduct discovery. They can introduce new evidence. The parties can engage in motion practice and the case can result in a full-blown trial with live testimony. Once the applicant submits new evidence, the district court then makes its own factual findings and doesn't just adopt the patent office's findings. There is a cost to this type of litigation, though. The statute says that in Section 145 actions, all the expenses of the proceeding shall be paid by the applicant. So what happened in the NatQuest case? NatQuest filed a patent application on a method for treating cancer using natural killer cells. The patent examiner rejected the application for obviousness, and the board affirmed the rejection. NatQuest then filed a complaint against the patent office in the Eastern District of Virginia under Section 145. There was some discovery, but NatQuest lost on summary judgment, and the Federal Circuit affirmed. The Patent Office then filed a motion for reimbursement of its expenses under Section 145. The amount sought by the PTO included its attorney's fees. They based the fees on the pro rata salaries of the two PTO attorneys and one paralegal who worked on the case, plus its expert witness fees. This was a complete change from the Patent Office's previous practice in these types of cases. Section 145 has been around in one form or another for 170 years, including a provision on reimbursement of expenses. But a few years ago, the Patent Office decided that expenses included attorney's fees and started requesting fees in every case. 
one thing to note is that the expenses provision applies even if the applicant wins. So the patent office started requesting attorney's fees, whether it won or lost. Mike, how did the courts handle the patent office's request for attorney's fees? First, the district court judge denied the PTO's request for fees. But then a two-to-one panel of the federal circuit reversed. And then, in a surprise move, the court took the case in bank and vacated the panel decision. The federal circuit then asked for briefing on one question, whether the term all the expenses in Section 145 authorizes an award of attorney's fees to the patent office. There were several amicus briefs filed from bar associations. One was the American Bar Association, also the intellectual property owners, and the AIPLA. It's not surprising, but they all opposed the PTO's new reading of the statute and said that the PTO should not get its attorney's fees, win or lose. And what did the in-bank court decide? The in-bank federal circuit voted 7-4 that the patent office could not get its attorney's fees as part of its expenses. The majority opinion, written by Judge Stoll, said that the PTO's new policy on fees was contrary to the so-called American rule. The American rule is that parties must generally pay their own attorney's fees. This rule can be overcome if Congress makes a specific and explicit directive that attorney's fees are available. But here, the reimbursement provision in Section 145, awarding expenses, fell short of that standard. The court's majority opinion pointed out that the patent office's position would mean that patent applicants would have to pay attorney's fees even if they won. And it was not aware of any statute that requires a private party to pay the government's attorney's fees without regard to winning or losing. The PTO's interpretation would be particularly unusual in that case, and had Congress intended such a result, it would have said so in far plainer language. And finally, Mike, what effect is the NatQuest decision likely to have? Section 145 actions are not that common. But had the Federal Circuit adopted the PTO's position as the original panel did, it would have put a real disincentive in place. If an applicant has to pay the patent office's attorney's fees, even if it wins, that's a big drawback to filing a case in the district court. Since the decision, the Federal Circuit has already applied the NantQuest ruling in another case. The court tossed out an award of attorney's fees in a case called Realvert versus Iancu. There are also other cases on the attorney's fee rule involving trademark applications. There's a parallel provision to Section 145 for trademark applicants that uses almost the same language. And in a case involving Booking.com, the trademark applicant filed a civil action in the district court, just like they do for patent cases. And after winning in that court, it was still ordered to pay the PTO's attorney's fees. That appeal went to the Fourth Circuit, and the Fourth Circuit decided that expenses included attorney's fees, contrary to what the Federal Circuit said in NantQuest. So there's a clear split in the two circuit courts that have jurisdiction over these issues. For now, in patent cases, the PTO can't get its attorney's fees in civil actions filed by patent applicants. But trademark applicants who file similar district court actions have to pay attorney's fees to the PTO, win or lose. It's a split the Supreme Court is likely to resolve. Our guest has been Mike Jakes, a partner at Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. 
For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.